Good morning, Applewood family. And all of you who are guests with us this morning, glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us. Did you know that Christ is risen? Oh, you've heard that. That's good. That's good. You, you didn't grow up in South Africa, obviously. I was surprised by that. You know, this isn't going to stay here this morning with my chains, but that's all right. You've perhaps noticed a few chains around here. There's a, there's a theme. There's a theme. We're coming to that. But, ah, it is good to be here to celebrate this morning. Many of us were here on Friday night, Good Friday night service, and boy, that's, that's such an important service. It is so bleak. It is dark, it is hard, it is a good reminder to us, and, uh, and hopefully lights a fire for the celebration this morning. On, on this resurrection day, we, uh, God's people around the world spent yesterday, which is often referred to as Holy Saturday or, or Great Saturday, in anticipation of this celebration this morning. So, once again... Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, let's talk some more about that and, uh, and what that means for life. In his book, some of you may know the name, uh, Rollo May, psychologist, wrote a book called The Quest for Beauty. I have shared this story with, with some of you before. He describes in his book different uh, scenes, beautiful places in his quest for beauty in life uh, he spent time visiting beautiful places around the world. And he describes one of them, Mount Athos, with, which is a peninsula of monasteries in Greece. And he says one morning that he was out hiking, it was very early, and he just happened upon this, this Greek Orthodox celebration of Easter. It had been going on all night. And he arrived, and he said, there's incense in the air. He just smell it. The, the only light is coming from candles and and at the height of the service, the, the priest gave everyone three eggs, wonderfully decorated and wrapped in a veil. And then the priest announces, Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. And every person in that building, including Rollo May, said, Yes, he is risen indeed. Thank you, Doug. And then May writes this. I think this is so cool. He says, suddenly, I was seized by this moment of spiritual reality, possibility. What would it mean for our world if he had truly risen? All around the world today, people are gathering to celebrate the truth that Christ has truly risen because because they believe. They believe in the biblical record. They believe in the, in the witnesses that have stood through history. Sure, it's a great story. But more importantly, it's a story that has implications for the life of every person who hears it. Do you know the name Emil Rattelban? He made the news. About a year and a half ago, he's a Dutch TV personality and motivational speaker. He made the news when he petitioned a Dutch court to change his official date of birth. He wanted all his official documentation to match his state 
of mental and physical fitness. How do you like that? He was 69 at the time, and he wanted to have his age legally changed to 49. And that was motivated by the, uh, the, 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 he felt that at 69 years old, he was outdated for social media dating sites. Yeah, that was reasonable thinking. He states, I feel much younger than my age. I am a young God. I can have all the girls, his word, not mine, I can have all the girls I want, but not after I tell them that I'm 69. And so he says, I feel young. I'm in great shape. But I feel discriminated against because of my age. And he says, I am my identity. To which I think something like, well, yes, yes, Mr. Rattleband, you really are your identity. If you're referring to thinking like a brainless nitwit, <laughs> you know, I, I could offer him some advice which he wouldn't ask me for, it would go something like this. You know, you are a 69-year-old male, now almost 71, because that was a year and a half ago. You need to grow up emotionally and get over yourself. Now, as you might imagine, the, uh, the Dutch court did not agree with his position. Here is the statement, or part of the statement, of the ruling against him. Amending his date of birth would cause 20 years of records to vanish from the register of births, deaths, marriages, and registered partnerships. This would have a variety of undesirable legal and societal implications. There are other alternatives available for challenging age discrimination rather than amending a person's date of birth. Yeah, like grow up and, and, and think like your age. And, and at this point, you are thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with the resurrection? And you would be thinking that rightly. I, I understand that. Aren't we supposed to be talking about the resurre resurrection and the empty tomb? And yes, absolutely. I tell you that story because I think it illustrates a point about human existence that's essential for us to understand as, as we move on into this Sermon on Resurrection Sunday. So, so we're going to read from John's Gospel this morning, his resurrection account. And what I would like to do is I'd like to start the story, and then I'll invite you about halfway through the story to stand with me, if you would, and, and then we'll read the rest of it. So let me start us off. John writes, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter came along behind him, and typical Simon Peter barged right on in, went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw, and he believed. And they still 
John adds parenthetically, they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Okay, stand with me and let's finish this portion of the story. Together. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Oh, my friends, sisters, and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord for us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We know from the Gospels that there were a number of women who, who traveled with Jesus. They were, they were committed followers of Jesus and they, they shared in his ministry. And we know that, that they were extremely important to Jesus. For, for many women in that era... Jesus was a breath of fresh air because women were, were quite frankly, uh, in, in many parts of the society, second-class citizens. The Romans were especially horrible. Uh, the Jews were a step up. But still, women were valued more for the roles and the service that they provided than for just being women who were created in the image of God. And so Jesus, Jesus pressed against the norm of the day. He respected and honored women. He, he elevated them in his treatment. He recognized them as enormously precious and valuable because they were, they were co-bearers of the image of God. Mary Magdalene was one of those women. She's referred to by name in all of the Gospels, um, and it specifically in the resurrection accounts. Mary Magdalene is always there. And as we just read, John records that she was the first one at the tomb on that resurrection morning. We don't know much about the ladies that were a part of Jesus' following. But Mark records in his gospel a very significant piece of, of Mary's past. At some point, Jesus had delivered her from demon possession. Mark's very specific about it. He delivered her from seven demons. You know, it seems to me that, that one demon would be enough to wreak havoc on someone's life. Mary had seven demons. Okay, 
Karen, can we put that next slide up? Here's what I'd like you to do for just a couple of minutes. Those of you who are our guests, we do this every Sunday. It's just a, it's a, it's a quick neighbor discussion to just kind of get the thought processes going to push us ahead further in, in our, our time together. So how does knowing this about Mary, the fact that she had seven demons and Jesus delivered her from those, how does knowing this about her perhaps give us insight into why she was the first one at the tomb and why it was so important to her to find the body of Jesus? See what a person next to you thinks. Talk about that for just a couple minutes. All right, can we talk about it for a minute? What do you think? What did your neighbor have to say, or what did you uh, you share with your neighbor? Okay, okay, okay. So Mary was totally sold out to Jesus. Okay, okay. Did you get that last part? She would have been concerned that Jesus was, it may seem rather haphazardly, put into this tomb. Uh, perhaps with proper, without proper preparation, uh, preparing the body for, for burial because the Sabbath was upon them and, and, and they, had to, they had to cease from, from their work on, on the Sabbath. So Mary was, was a passionate follower of Jesus. She was all in. What else? What else did you talk about? Ah, oh, motivated by the incredible change that Jesus has brought into her life. Okay, yeah, that's, that's an interesting twist. That, did you hear it in the back that, that she'd been delivered of these demons? And, and it's good. Je- while Jesus is alive, you know, he's, he's in control. But what's going to happen now that he's dead? You know, will the demons return? What else? Other, other thoughts or responses? Wait, weren't you the neighbor that talked to this person right here? <laughs> exactly. The life that she'd been set free from was not the life that she went back to because that wasn't a life worth living. It seems that she was, she was motivated to just to really live all out for Jesus. Good stuff. Anyone else have something they just need, just need to add to that? Yeah, I think there's something too, just especially after realizing he's, he's really alive, there's something too, everything that, that he did before that has even greater significance, perhaps, than, than we realized. He is alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you, when you hear those words, demon possession. You know, there, there are certainly stories in the gospel that, that paint some pretty gruesome images of, of what that can look like. Uh, certainly Hollywood Filmmakers have had a heyday over, over the decades uh, creating movies that, uh, that paint horrific pictures, bizarre images of, of what possession might look like. But, but the truth is that I think what underlies all of this, what underlies the idea of, of demon possession, whether it's, it's the images that we see in the gospel or whether it's the rather crazy, bizarre, imaginary images that we, that we see in, in movies, the theme that is consistent is the idea or the concept of, of control. An individual who is possessed, to whatever degree, is not in control. Something else 
is controlling that person. Let me take you back to a story that's familiar probably for many of us because it's important then to bring us back to where we are. Understanding the creation in Genesis, first book of the Bible, first couple of chapters, tells us that God created people and they were created in his image and they were created to live in relationship with God. A relationship that that we see unfold in the scripture as we, we see more and more of who God is, a relationship of love, a relationship of, of intimacy that, that, quite frankly, none of us can imagine. And, and the foundation of a relationship with God is to, is to live according to the design that God has created us to live, to live in obedience, if I can say it that way, to live the way that he has designed life to be lived within the context of relationship to him. So human beings were created to live in relationship with God. That is, that's the number one reason for the existence of every person on planet Earth. God has created people to live in relationship with him, to, to enjoy him, to be satisfied in him because he is the source of their life. People were designed for that. And it's important to understand, and this may be just crazy to say, but sometimes I feel the need to, to clarify and say that, that God was not on an ego trip when he did this. You know, he, he wasn't demanding obedience for obedience sake. But as our creator, he was, he was calling us to obey and to live according to the rules that he has set up because no one knows better what's going to bring satisfaction and fulfillment to the human soul than the one who created it. That's who God is. A God who offers abundant life and deep soul satisfaction even in the midst of a very broken world in which we find ourselves living. That is God's intent. You know, Augustine, 4th century church father and theologian, said that, God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He was right. That's how God has made us. He knew and still knows what is best for us. He's made us for himself. And, and what is best for us is a relationship of, of, of intimacy with him. And that intimacy can only be experienced when we live life according to his plan and, and not our own. So to live in relationship with him forever, to explore the inexhaustible riches and depth of who God is, and, and finding satisfaction in him as his people. That's, that is a longer but very, very cursive uh, in some ways, view of Genesis 1 and 2. And then chapter 3, of course, the enemy of God shows up. And the enemy of God, referred to as, as Satan or the deceiver or the evil one throughout Scripture, convinced the people that God had created that God is untrustworthy, that he's holding out on them, that, that there is something more. He convinces them of that and they listen. And the relationship with God is broken. And suddenly human beings find themselves captive 
They find themselves in bondage. They find themselves in, in chains to a life for which they were not intended. This last summer, we were on a vacation in the Outer Banks with family, and we should have probably taken a clue from the literature that promoted where we were going to this beach house. All of Sharice's family, we all converged on it. And, and, it, and it says clearly in the print, four-wheel drive vehicles are required to get here. Well, we had all-wheel drive vehicles. Isn't that good enough? No. So one of my, my boys got stuck on the beach as he's trying to get, you know, out of, off beach into town, back to the airport. And it's one of those efforts where we are just all pushing and we're digging and the harder we push and the more he guns it, the deeper he is just getting buried in the sand. And, and there were some locals that came along in four-wheel drive trucks. Imagine that. And one of them had this ginormous toe strap. And, and so they hooked on and he starts gunning that thing. And, and pretty soon the snap just, the, 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 it snaps and, uh, and we're thinking, we are just in big trouble. Another guy comes along and, and says in his southern accent, y'all need a little help here? And I said, oh, man, do you, you think you could help us get this, this car unstuck? No problem. He goes back to this toolbox, and he hefts out the biggest chain I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I stupidly say to him, you think that'll work? He said, that'll work puts it on the back end of his four-wheel drive truck, and I thought he was going to yank the chassis out from underneath that car. Got him out, and away my son went down the beach. Chains, my friends. Chains are powerful forces. Chains are things that are, are not easily broken. And human beings, when they live life apart from God, will find themselves in bondage. Because the enemy of God continues to this day to convince people of the rightness of their decisions. That living life apart from God is going to be okay. That it's going to be a good life. But the reality is, that is a life lived in chains. It is to be a prisoner in chains and it keeps us from the place where we were intended to be. And that had been Mary's life. Meeting Jesus, she suddenly was delivered from chains. She'd been controlled by forces that had stripped her life of true meaning and satisfaction, turned her into someone she was never created to be. And it was Jesus that rescued her from that miserable, hopeless existence and restored her to the relationship for which she'd been created. We don't know for sure why she was looking for the body. The other gospel accounts tell us that she was coming to anoint Jesus' body because it had been the Sabbath and perhaps there hadn't been proper preparation. Uh, that would have been the custom of the day. But I'm suspicious. I think it was more than that. I tend to think that she simply could not believe that the one who had rescued her from that chained existence was gone. And perhaps there was fear that now that he's gone, will the chains return? I think she may have come to the tomb in hopes that it had all been a bad dream. And, and, and once there, she couldn't even get a look at the body to know if it was really true. Did you hear how she responded when the angels asked her why she was crying? I'm always struck with the, the lack of surprise. Oh, angels, you know. None of that. 
She is so deep in sorrow and so concerned. Her response tells us volumes about what was in her heart. Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've put him. I love that. Those words. My Lord. They're so important. The language of her day, Lord, was someone who, who ruled over another person. The Lord was an owner, a master, a boss, someone who had control of others. And in those two little words, we learn something I think very important about Mary because she had given control of her life to Jesus, the one who had rescued her from the control of other forces that only brought pain and heartache and frustration and despair into her life. Jesus had broken the chains of bondage. He became her master and the owner of who she was and she simply did not know what she was going to do without him. read the story of a pastor who traveled Ecuador many years ago and spent a couple of weeks living uh, with an indigenous people group in the mountains. And, and he writes, they lived amidst the most mind-numbing squalor and filth that I have seen. The disease and disfigured bodies were heartbreaking. The bugs and the stench were everywhere. People were living in a hole in the ground and calling it a house. They were feeding on rotten food and prizing garbage as possessions. But they didn't know it. Why? Because everyone lived that way. They had never been given a picture of what it means to be a genuinely healthy human being. They did not know what that kind of life looked like. Friends, chains come in all different sizes and shapes. And people give themselves to being chained up without even knowing it. Because the enemy of God succeeds on a daily basis in convincing people that life is best lived apart from God and apart from His loving control. And, and when people do that, they'll find themselves in chains bound in ways that they may not even recognize. Chains of financial pursuits, worries about the future and security, concerns about health and fitness and wanting to look good and personal reputation and concern for what others think about me or what they should think about me. or These would be some of the more subtle and, and maybe even respectable kinds of chains, but nonetheless, they hold us in bondage. You know, perhaps some of the more recognizable ones would be, would be addictions to, to different substances, addiction to, to food, unhealthy relationships, constantly trashing and burning bridges between people who are supposed to, to love and care for one another. Phobias of all kinds. Fear runs amok in humanity. And all the time and the energy given to worry and concern about all those things. That's a chain too. The list goes on and on and on. There are plenty of chains to go around. All the chains contribute to sort of two categories of people in life. And this is a, a huge generalization, but sort of a continuum, if you will. The first category is the I'm okay category. I'm doing just fine in life. No worries, no concerns, I'm in control. Chains can bind a person in a way that makes them think they're okay. They believe that if they have the right stuff, they know the right people, they do the right things, they live a life that doesn't hurt others, they're moral, based on someone's definition of morality, then they are doing just fine. These folks think they're living a good life if they're basically moral, good intentioned people. 
These folks don't think they need God. Emil Rathoban is an example of this kind of thinking. He's wrong. I am a young God, says Emil. He is very wrong. The second category is on the opposite end of the continuum. I'm not okay. This is the idea that I've, I've done too many bad things. Some people are well aware of their rottenness. If God knew what I've done, and he does, but they don't think so, the ways that I think, the people that I've hurt, the pain that I've caused, oh, there is no way that God would want to be in relationship with me. I am not good enough. These folks realize that they need God, but they are chained by the things in life that they feel have put them beyond the reach of God. They too are wrong. Before he died, Jesus told his followers that he'd come to bring abundant life. He'd come to die on a cross so that the broken relationship between humanity and God, the one they were created to have, could be restored. The chains could be broken. Abundant means full and satisfying. That's what Jesus promised. Full and satisfying. Even in the midst of the hard world in which we live, it's because our souls, as Augustine said, find satisfaction because they have entered into the relationship for which they are created. Abundant, full, and satisfying. It is the reason that God's people celebrate today. If you're living without knowing the risen Jesus as your Lord, if, if you cannot say as Mary did, my Lord, then, then it's, it's because you're in chains. Of some kind, you are being held back. You, you may have everything that our culture says is important to, to have, but, but if Jesus is not your Lord, then, then you're a victim of the lies of the enemy. Jesus is not your Lord. Or you may think that you're out of reach of God's love beyond hope because of the things that you've done. Again, you are believing a lie and, and you are in chains. You are in bondage. Mary discovered on that first resurrection morning that everything Jesus had said and done really was true. And the abundant life he promised was hers to keep because he was still alive to ensure that it happened. So on Friday night, we sat here in a dim room with the cross in the center so that, so that we, we had to see it. We couldn't help but see it. And that cross was draped in chains. We were reminded of the brokenness of the human condition. We were reminded that Jesus loves broken people. And that is why he was willing to suffer and hang on and die on that cross to free humanity from the chains of life that separate them, us, from God. So, if you have never made that conscious decision in your life to surrender control, to, to be free of the chains, whatever form they might take, maybe today is a good place to start as we celebrate the one who's the chain breaker. 
this morning might be a good time. Praise team, why don't you come forward? Let me just finish with a couple more thoughts as you're on your way. My favorite part of the story, despite all of the other things that I think are marvelous, my favorite part of the story is Jesus called her name. She, for whatever reason, didn't recognize him. Thought he was the gardener. He knew her. He'd known her all along. He'd known her since she was conceived. He, he knew her life and its past. He knew all of the chains that had held her. He also knew the chains that would, from time to time, continue to hold her in her life on earth. But no matter, he loved her deeply and he would always be the source of freedom from chains and bondage in her life. Mary made a good decision when she surrendered control of her life, when she recognized what Jesus had done for her. Again, the invitation to any of you this morning who are struggling with chains. Maybe you don't know Jesus as Lord. Maybe you do and there's just chains that, that you just need to, to, to pray about it. And, and let Jesus begin to deal with. As we close this morning, I would invite anyone who wants to, to come up and, and pray. Pray near this cross that is, that is a symbol of abundant, glorious, beautiful life. Come and, and pray. I'll be here. Would love to, to pray with anyone who wants to come on this glorious resurrection morning. Christ is risen. That needed just a tad more volume. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. There we go. Yes, he is.